Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Well, tomorrow, July the 1st, marks 25 years since the handover of Hong Kong to China, and the anniversary is being marked as Beijing continues to tighten its grip on the city of 7.5 million people cracking down on pro-democracy protests and media critical of China. So what does the future hold for what has been one of the world's most vibrant cities? Ahead of Canada Day here at home, we look into a new and comprehensive poll that shows the country is a lot less divided than some would lead you to believe. We head to Lytton, B.C. to find out how the community marked the one-year anniversary of that deadly and devastating wildfire that destroyed much of the area. But first, we speak to the former Chief Operating Officer of Air Canada about the airline's decision to slash more than 150 flights a day over the summer period, setting unprecedented strains on the airline industry. And we will start tonight in those not-so-friendly skies these days. Staffing shortages at airports and airlines are expected to continue to cause long lines and flight delays and cancellations this Canada Day long weekend. The head of Canada's largest, second-largest airline today, WestJet, said the company is flying 32% fewer flights in and out of Toronto Pearson International Airport than it did in 2019. WestJet CEO Alexis von Honsbrook says the airline actually proactively removed the flights between March and May in anticipation of snarls at Canada's largest airport as those COVID-19 restrictions were lifted and travel demand surged. Uh, this will hopefully allow us to get through, through the summer um, with reasonable performance. Uh, however, we also have to recognize the summer is going to be a big challenge. That is WestJet's CEO there. Last night, we learned that Air Canada is slashing its flight schedule in July and August. A company spokesperson says on average, it will affect 154 flights per day, mainly from its Toronto and Montreal hubs. That's really where the big problems are. The airline is citing unprecedented strains on the airline industry from resurgent travel. Uh, The CEO of uh, the airline says that despite detailed and careful planning, the largest and fastest scale of hiring in our history, as well as investments in aircraft and equipment, it is now clear that Air Canada's operations, too, have been disrupted by the industry's complex and unavoidable challenges. Well, joining me with more on this now is Duncan D. He's a former chief operating officer at Air Canada, so he knows what's going on behind the scenes. And he was a member of the panel appointed to review the Canada Transportation Act in 2016. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, you're perfectly suited to know this. Uh, what was going on behind the scenes for Air Canada to have to make this, uh, this which would I suspect would be a pretty difficult decision to make because it really is losing revenue, right? Absolutely. You know, if we rewind a little bit, uh, this decision uh, on what the summer schedule would look like, what the uh, staffing resources would look like, were, were probably put to bed at Air Canada sometime last fall. So, you know, sometime last fall, the senior executives at the company said, we're going to want to fly these many flights. And the folks who run the operating side would have said, we will, uh, to to do that, we will need so many staff. And so let's make sure those are all in place. So Air Canada went into this with 97% of its pre-pandemic staffing, and it was going to run a schedule which looked around 80% of its pre-pandemic summer schedule. And the... I think what basically reality started to sink in was over the last 90 days, we've had, you know, these constant delays at customs and constant delays at security. And it's just gotten to a point now where a lot of those delays could no longer be, um, you know, prettied up. Uh, We're now in the summer peak. There's huge numbers of travelers at the airports. Flights are full. And, you know, there's just nowhere left uh, to, to go. And so they probably looked at this after a fir- their first full week in the summer peak and said, look, our staff, our aircraft cannot handle much more of this. We're going to need to start to pull a little bit of our schedule back. And that's what they did. It would be a tough call, though, because, I mean, I, for, for all airlines, this was supposed to be the summer where they were going to return to glory, so to speak, or return to, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of passengers. And all of a sudden, something like Air Canada, I mean, I guess they're flying at full right now, but it still means scaling back and disappointed passengers of their flights are being canceled and so forth. Yeah, no, I mean, for so many of uh, airline people, folks who uh, work within an airline, it's not just a job. You know, th- these pilots and flight attendants, for them, this is their passion. And so this was going to be their victory lap after two years of absolute uh, hell in terms of the 
uh, air travel business. And so they were very uh, geared up for a, a very strong summer, very geared up for a really um, profitable summer from a shareholder perspective. And then suddenly, you know, the curveball gets thrown where very, very basic services not working, you know, airport security, three hour lineups. And the, the solution to that was three hour check in uh, to, to get around that. And then, you know, on inbound arrivals, you know, people waiting on board planes two and three hours and then getting into another two and three hour line when they get off the plane. Um, you know, it, and those are still ongoing. You know, last night, a pilot uh, had mentioned to me that they themselves personally were at the de-ice bay at Pearson for two and a half hours after landing um, in a 787 filled with travelers. And so, you know, uh, the, the government might think they've solved this issue, but when you hear stories like that as late as last night, then, you know, clearly there's something going on that's not right. What would be the impact then for passengers? Because I know obviously a lot of these flights were already booked, right? Well, look, for a lot of these flights were already booked, but I think what Air Canada has done or tried to do, they're not going to be able to to help 100% of travelers. But they did a couple of things that were quite smart. They dropped a route, for example, like uh, Montreal to Baltimore, Washington International Airport. And the folks who, who know that area know that you've also got alternatives like Dulles and National, both of which are served by Air Canada. So when you choose to cancel one of those three, what you're hoping is that the other travelers, when they're offered either National or Dulles, that those also work for their for, for their travel needs. And so a few of these flights, like um, flights to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, well, you know, they, they dropped Montreal-Pittsburgh, but they kept Toronto-Pittsburgh. So they're likely hoping that they can flow some of the traffic over, over uh, Pearson. And the other uh, cancellations they've done are things like uh, one out of three flights between Montreal and Moncton, New Brunswick, things like that, which there are, there are reasonable alternatives. Not everybody's going to be happy. They're going to have to issue refunds. Um, but at the end of the day, this was the only way they could salvage the balance of their summer uh, without doing things that would inconvenience travelers more, like day of cancellations, evening of cancellations, cancelling flights an hour before they go. Those are the things they were hoping to avoid. And I guess looking into the near future, those are the things they were seeing. They were seeing that threat, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were staring the, that threat very up close, and it was getting uh, quite, uh, uh, quite getting to become quite a bit of a, uh, a concern for a lot of the operating people, not just at Air Canada, but other airlines. You know, you were seeing things like out of nowhere, uh, a lineup forming at security at uh, Trudeau Airport in Montreal uh, you know, two, three hours long, bang, it just, it just shows up. And then, as I mentioned earlier, a pilot lands at Pearson and bang, they're, they're told, oh, you're going to wait at the, the, the ice pad for two and a half hours. You know, th- the, things like that, which are so unpredictable, which are entirely based on um, agencies that are fully outside of your control, who don't really, frankly, care whether you're waiting under the ice pad for two and a half hours, um, you know, for, from their perspective, that's just what you're going to have to do. You know, when, when you're faced with that challenge, the decision Air Canada took was really the right one. I'm speaking with Duncan D. He's a former chief operating officer at Air Canada, a member of the panel appointed to review the Canada Transportation Act in 2016. We're talking about Air Canada's announcement last night uh, to, that's of some significant changes to their summer schedule, just a reflection of, of just how crowded, how jammed airports have become, specifically the big hubs in Toronto and Montreal, where Air Canada does a lot of its flying from and to, um, as well as, as just a recognition that uh, it wasn't going to get better and that uh, they weren't going to be able to provide some of the kinds of services that they would expect, or at least the level of service that they would hope to. So this decision, obviously a tough one for any airline to uh, to cancel uh, flights en masse heading into the very busy summer season. When we come back, um, we'll, get a, we'll get an update on how the government is doing, how the federal government is doing, and trying to fix some of this problem. these problems. We've been hearing a lot of announcements of late, a lot of talk about what's being done. Is it working? That's next. Our guest this half hour is Duncan D. He's a former chief operating officer at Air Canada. We've been discussing the airline's decision to alter its summer schedule quite significantly. Uh, not dramatically, but significantly, considering just how busy this summer was going to be in the face of these ongoing delays that we've been seeing at specifically at major airports in the country uh, and heading into the even busier summer season.
season. Uh, Duncan, you mentioned this before. Um, you know, we knew this was coming months ago. And I guess, has the government done enough now to react? I mean, this has been going on for a while now. Um, can, can, can we still blame the government for what's going on here in part because of, uh, because of these continued problems? Look, the thing, Ben, that really struck me was the government was uh, warned about this three months ago, and they had ample opportunity to figure this out. Uh, and as we've seen at the passport offices, which are still a mess after an equal or maybe even longer amount of time, there just seems to be a state of denial in, in Ottawa right now as to what needs to be done. Uh, you know, the, the solution to three-hour security lines is not to ask travelers to show up three hours early for their flight. Um, and because that creates a whole host of other problems. Imagine an international boarding gate where you've got upwards of three different sets of travelers going to three different destinations. And the people that you've got boarding are, are making announcements in the language of the flight that they're, um, that they're working. So let's, for example, say it's a Frankfurt flight. Well, they've got announcements in English, French, and German. In Canada, at least, we have both official languages and the root language. Well, if the flight after that is to Athens, then you know, there, you're going to have a whole bunch of you know, Greek travelers who may not be that proficient in, in the other languages that are being announced. And so when you ask them to board, you're going to end up with a crowd that's mixed. Uh, and so that delays the boarding process. So you know, the solutions that the federal government has come up with are just completely um, unworkable uh, in the long term. Uh, on, the, on the arrival side, if I just conclude with this, th you know, they've got the Arrive Can app, which the Customs and Immigration Union has come out and said is causing tremendous headaches for their members. They're transforming customs officers into the IT help desk. And, you know, they've got this Arrive Can app that they've now just said is going to be prolonged indefinitely. So this thing's going to be around for the long run. But, you know, it's not even something that that makes any sense from uh, an app perspective. This is an international travel app. And, you know, I was looking at the website today. It's available in English, French, and Spanish. So, you know, somebody in Ottawa obviously decided that doing it just in English and French doesn't work. So they, they had the brilliant idea that they would do Spanish, uh, which completely wipes off, an you know, entire sectors of the world where English, French, or Spanish aren't the the working language, the official language. And so you've, you, 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 no wonder you've got huge problems with uh, these, this app being used by travelers, especially during the summer season. Imagining a senior citizen from Korea or a senior citizen from China uh, that doesn't speak English, French, or Spanish, inputting their personal health information into this app. We spoke to the union uh, about the arrive can issue. They took great uh, uh, they took great uh, umbrage. They were objected to the to the numbers that were being released by by Ottawa, saying that ninety six percent of travelers had filled this out on there before coming through. They said that was completely wrong. That in fact, uh, their agents are spending an awful lot of time trying to help people figure out how to use that app. Under what circumstances? I mean, the airlines asked for it through IATA. IATA asked for it. Uh, lots of people were asking for the Arrive Can app to be scrapped for the summer. We're not even sure how effective it really is. Um, what kind of impact will, will leaving it in place have as we're heading into an even busier time uh, for, air, for airline or for airline travel this summer? Well, you know, the airports have already announced that the Arrive Can app, along with the other pandemic controls at customs, is resulting in a fourfold increase in the amount of time each and every traveler is screened. So unless the government increases their manpower by four times, they're basically planning on huge lineups. You can't increase the workload of customs and immigration officers by four, 400% and leave the same staffing plan in place. So they, they've basically decided that, you know, maybe, uh, Long lines are what uh, they're willing to live with. Inconvenienced travelers are what they're willing to live with. Uh, you know, I, I, I think they might be trying to prove a point. I, I don't know very many um, initiatives in government that have been virtually unanimously derided the way this Arrive Can app is. And frankly, Ben, I'm not talking about people like you and me. I mean, you and I can, can use that app without any issue whatsoever. The, the problem is, during the summer peak, it's not just people like Duncan D and Ben O'Hara Byrne that are taking to the skies. You've got a mix of people and languages and cultures. 
And it's just making things that are that's already stressful even worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I can't imagine why they decided to leave that in place uh, for this summer, considering the kinds. Now, it should be fair to point out to Canada that we're seeing uh, all kinds of airport issues, airline issues in the U.S. and Britain as well. Uh, we're not alone. Uh, this is a system that uh, that has very little room to maneuver right now, and anything that goes wrong, as we saw with the luggage incident in Toronto this week at Pearson, anything that goes wrong can have a huge impact. Uh, as a last word, Duncan, advice to travelers for the summer as of now. We're into the peak. Uh, you travel a lot. You fly all the time. What advice do you have for folks out there if they're planning to uh, hit the skies in the next few months? Look, for folks who are traveling, um, the number one thing I would say right now is don't check bags. So to the extent that you can do all of your uh, travel with just a uh, uh, carry-on piece of luggage, do that absolutely 100%. To the extent that uh, you, can't, you can avoid having to make a connection, Flying nonstop will always be, should always be your preference, even if it costs just a little bit more. Because if you miss your connection, whatever savings you had on on a connecting flight is going to disappear very, very quickly. Wise advice, Duncan D. from a man who travels a lot. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sounds of ceremony in Hong Kong today, where it is already Friday and July the 1st marks the 25th anniversary of Britain handing over control of its then colony to China back in 1997. Events there are unfolding under heavy security. Chinese President Xi Jinping traveled to the city, his first trip outside of mainland China in nearly 900 days to give you a sense of the importance of the day. Uh, Seen by some as a victory tour after Beijing tightened its control of Hong Kong with a sweeping national security law following mass pro-democracy protests back in 2019. In his comments today, President Xi said, quote, after reuniting with the motherland, Hong Kong people became the masters of their own city. Hong Kong's true democracy started from here. You may find someone in Hong Kong who would disagree with that. It comes as China continues to expand its influence and exert its control over the business hub, home to 7.5 million people, clamping down on freedoms it had promised to uphold for 50 years back in 1997 after taking sovereignty over the territory. Now, Hong Kong residents still enjoy greater autonomy and more civil liberties than other uh, Chinese residents on the mainland, but many protests are now banned. Pro-democracy newspapers openly critical of the government have been forced to close and China's grip on civil society continues to tighten. So what does this anniversary symbolize? What does the future hold? Joining me now is Diana Larry. She's a professor emerita at the Department of History at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Good evening. So oh, good, looking good. back, oh, go ahead. Or good morning. No, I was <laughs> good just morning, going Hong to say that the thing that strikes me at once is that um, reading the news from Hong Kong, where it's already tomorrow, already July the 1st, uh, they're dealing with uh, driving rain and the fringes <laughs> of um, a typhoon. And it's exactly yes. the same kind of weather that they had 25 years ago. So one phrase that yeah. comes to mind is raining on my parade, right? It all, <laughs> absolutely. I've spent, I've spent time there and in the area. Yes. Uh, typhoons are common, but this is the first one of the year, or the, sort of the edges of well, it, as I don't you think it's going to hit Hong Kong, but, you know, if it's right. just close by, the, the rain is really appalling. Um, you know, th- it is. <laughs> that, that you mentioned it, looking back at those images of 25 years ago, I guess yes. at the time there was this expectation that the handover would, would, would sort of usher in a new era, for not for just for Hong Kong, but for China too, that 25 years later we might see a more liberal Hong Kong and a more liberal China. We haven't seen either. Uh, what are your thoughts on this anniversary? Uh, where is Hong Kong now and where is it headed? I know that's a vast question, but... Well, in... In the very large scheme of things, I've always believed in Hong Kong, and it's been through so many tremendous ups and downs, and I just can't believe that this is the last one. But this is also a very sad time, because the the law that you mentioned, the national security law, trumps all other laws. So, uh, in effect, the rule of law has virtually uh, disappeared We've got a former policeman in charge uh, who is a man 
of apparently completely no persona at all, um, Mr. John Lee. I mean, what? And the outlook for Hong Kong is pretty bleak at the moment, but the same is true of China. I mean, I feel just as sad that China is going through this return to the idea of having one supreme leader who must rule forever and uh, who has to be feared as much as anything else. So I think it's it's a pretty sad picture. The only thing that's not sad is that out of this, once again, Canada will get another excellent um, stream of uh, immigrants. Stroke, well, they're not really refugees, but they are leaving Hong Kong because of how little future they see for themselves there. And uh, they come with all kinds of skills which are very important to this to this um, country. And the sad thing, of course, is that many of them are young. It's the young who are leaving now. Yeah, did it surprise you? It surprised me to a certain extent, having spent enough time in Beijing and, and time in Hong Kong as well, and, and just always noticing what a vast difference there was between the two places, even though it may be harder to describe if you don't live in either one. But uh, the speed with which the crackdown happened uh, was, to me, surprising. Well, I think the the demonstrations before COVID completely spooked not just um, Beijing, but also a lot of the older people in Hong Kong, especially the sort of business elite who caved in 100% or 150% to, to Beijing's wishes. Um, I think the COVID has been... I mean, whatever else one thinks about COVID, COVID has enabled uh, and justified any kind of uh, government regulations and rules. And the Hong Kong ones are particularly strict at the moment and continue to be so, although without actually solving the COVID problem because they've also had a lot of COVID. And the two things combined, uh, you know, you couldn't, uh, if you want to, Please, people, and if you want to keep people under strict control all the time, a, a pandemic is, is sadly to say, a very good time to do it. That being said, when Hong Kong, because a lot of the, the security law came into place uh, just before the pandemic, that the pandemic hit, and now we see uh, the results of, uh, of the security laws. Well, at some point here, Hong Kong will reemerge. Uh, it will become a more free place with which to move around. And, and uh, one gets the impression, because we used to, go, of course, go there for the anniversary of Tiananmen Square uh, yes. on June the 4th, because there were, there were parties there. Of course, there were parties there. There were, there were events to mark that day there. It is completely uh, blocked out in China. <clears throat> there was also, of course, a free press to some extent. Um, you know, it wasn't ideal, but there was lots of, uh, lots of good journalism going on in, that, in, in Hong Kong. When Hong Kong reemerges from this COVID time, one gets the impression it's going to be a very different place. And I just can't picture it. I can't picture Hong Kong not being that chaotic, vibrant place that it has been for quite a while now. Well, one possibility, I'm, I'm an, an eternal optimist, is that not just Hong Kong, but the whole Cantonese world, which is the province of Guangdong, and also a lot of the overseas community, will one day when Beijing is not so determined to stamp its control, that that whole area might um, not quite go out on its own, but have the the essential vibrancy that was Hong Kong. It's also very Cantonese, right? The, you can't separate the one from the other. And I, uh, that's always terrified Beijing. And the most amazing thing with uh, the Canton region being the leading economic engine of reform. They don't have a single person on the Central Committee, for instance. There's no power representation in Beijing at all at the moment for any Cantonese. And we're talking about, you know, certainly over 100 million people, which anywhere else would be a significant country. But the big thing now is to see whether uh, they can't do much at the moment with... with, um, with Beijing so toughly in charge. But how long that will last in China itself, uh, one doesn't know. One only knows that one will be surprised with what does happen. Uh, one thing is watching China for a long while and having lived there for a long while, 
predictions are very dangerous because you can just yes. make yourself look stupid. Yes, I was once told that enjoy your first six months in China while you still think you know anything about it. That was why, that was a famous piece of advice. <laughs> well, that's that the I was other given. thing that's so wonderful is that you never get to the end of things that are of interest in China. It's just no. endlessly fascinating. And I Hong do Kong believe is, that yeah. Hong Kong will bounce back, but it'll be different. And everything is different now. And of course, the technology is a huge part of this. The, the, the fact that using cell phones, the government authorities can can uh, have some kind of check on everybody. And again, we've all gone along with that quite willingly. Uh, you know, we all we can all presumably, if Tim Hortons can check up on us, uh, government can as well. So that the you know everybody in China now is controlled also by their cell phones. They are. They, is they, a, they um, have. Uh, it's it's quite terrifying. It's far beyond 1984. It. I once asked why. How come our the cell phones that we back then even how come your cell phone worked everywhere you went? Didn't matter how rural it was, especially in the Beijing area. Your cell phone never stopped working. And I was reminded that it wasn't because they wanted us to have good phone service necessarily. I'm speaking with Diana Larry. She's a professor emerita of, of the Department of History at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about today or tomorrow at least. It's already tomorrow in Hong Kong marks the yes. 25th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong to China. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what impact this could have on Hong Kong's status as a global financial center. Will it stay that way in the years to come? That's next. My guest this half hour is Diana Lowry. She's a professor emerita in the Department of History at the University of British Columbia. We're speaking about the uh, anniversary today in Hong Kong of the handover of Hong Kong to China by Britain. It's 25 years. Um, Diana, the Hong Kong has long been a global financial center. Uh, do you think it will survive as such, given the uh, the crackdown that we're seeing from Beijing? Well, I'm probably not a good person since I have zero, almost zero <laughs> financial experience, except I did predict that Bitcoin wouldn't last. But other than that, um, it's going to change dramatically. For one thing, being an international center up until now has been having a lot of foreigners living there, usually in Hong Kong, called expats who have enjoyed a very lovely life. But that's changing. But they're very expensive to their home countries. And they're also deeply resentful now about the continuing virtual... And it's not a lockdown in Hong Kong, but it, the, the quarantining and the restrictions. And apparently, uh, more and more expats are leaving, as are uh, relatively young people. Uh, they may be possible to replace them from uh, the mainland, and I'm sure that's part of the intention. But the idea of being global and international now doesn't necessarily mean people actually having to live in one place. And we've all got used to people just not working in offices. So, um, you know, I mean, everybody has, you never, you don't know where people are now. And if they're prepared to do strange hours, they can often be working from Vancouver, yeah. but uh, for a Hong Kong company. Or, and yeah. I had dinner with a student the other day who's doing exactly that. He's not on vacation because he's working through the night in Vancouver in Hong Kong, so to speak. Right, and I then, suppose people could so do that. I don't yeah. know how long that will continue with the, the, the idea that people have to be in a place for it to be an, an international thing. The one important thing is the rule of law, because a lot of the business world depends on, uh, you know, contracts being safe and um, the kind of thing that the common law uh, the, the, the provides for people. Obviously, one part of that has disappeared in Hong Kong completely uh, with the national security law. And whether that affects uh, commercial law or not, I don't think anybody would be very certain about it. Um, not just contracts, but also long-term um, commitments. There's a very strange thing happening now with uh, Macau, Hong Kong's neighbor, which depends almost entirely on gambling. And suddenly, um, China or Beijing is reminding the gambling companies in Hong Kong that gambling 
is illegal in China, and Macau is now actually part of China. So when you get a sort of little bit of a shock like that, uh, you 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 realise how completely dependent, in some ways, uh, both the commercial world is on Beijing. I noticed today that uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was talking about uh, protecting Hong Kong or, you know, standing up for Hong Kong. It does feel now, though, that there's very little that anyone around the world can say or do to change China's course when it comes to how it decides what it wants to do and what it, what's in its best interests when it comes to the future of Hong Kong. Yeah, I think you have to, again, I'm always sort of slightly skeptical about um, the general feeling, which is quite common here as well, that what China wants, China gets. Um, certainly the British, one has to say, never really stood up for Hong Kong people's rights at all. Uh, there was a certain, except, ironically, the very last governor, Chris Patton. Uh, but China, the, the big changes in, uh, within China have all been from within. Uh, and they, the idea that they can, that they, uh, will continue to operate in a, an unchanging way. That's quite wrong too, and it's not. It's only in, in people's lifetimes now that China was just convulsed by the Cultural Revolution, uh, which was entirely self-inflicted. Um, I the idea that people just have to put up with China, I think is. Um, well, I think it's, it's just a bit self-serving because you don't actually, not really self-serving, you don't get much out of it. And China's not always sure what China wants itself. No, I mean, even in, even in my 50-year lifetime, uh, from the death of Mao to the end of the, to the cultural, the end of the, uh, of the cultural revolution to the death of Mao to the absolute transformation of the country as an economic superpower, uh, to what we see now under Xi Jinping, uh, even in, in a short period of time, history tends to move quickly, yes. uh, in China. Yeah, uh, Diana Larry, thank you so much for your thoughts. Oh, go well, ahead. Well, it's very Please interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, as we mark Canada Day this year, there has been much talk of late about what divides us as Canadians, what we disagree on. But a new poll from a prominent British pollster, Lord Ashcroft, found that isn't really a reflection of reality, at least not according to his extensive survey of 10,000 people. Instead, it found that Canadians, for the most part, are proud and hopeful in a modest way, of course, as he was at pains to point out, and that even on contentious issues, we tend to agree more than we disagree. And when we do disagree, we don't disagree violently. We don't disagree in a way that is us versus them. We tend to sort of be able to understand the other side to a certain extent. And we're not all that divided on what really matters. Canadians, he says, seem a lot more confident, empathetic, proud, and trusting of their own democracy and national identity than the loudest cultural voices would often suggest. If anything, Lord Ashcroft said, uh, he told the National Post in an interview, civic life in Canada is growing a bit scratchier with outsized attention paid to noisy extremes, but he found no entrenched polarization, no seismic social divisions. It is an interesting Result And to join us now with more on this is Charles Breton. He's the Executive Director of the Centre of Excellence on the Canadian Federation at the Institute for Research on Public Policy in Montreal. A fascinating study. Thanks for your time tonight to talk about it. That's my pleasure. This paints quite the portrait of, uh, of the country that we're in right ahead of Canada Day, of course. Always interesting. Um, what stood out for you? There were some, some things that were, I think, not counterintuitive, but certainly it shows a country that is relatively uh, not divided, <laughs> to use a double negative. <laughs> I, I, I think it depends on what you expect, right? Um, I've, I've, uh, I've done a lot of, of that kind of stuff uh, uh, in my career as well. And uh, there are two things that people tend to expect, right? They tend to expect people to be divided um, to some extent, and they expect from year to year lots of change. Uh, and it turns out that's never the case, right? So people are probably are not as divided as we as we might think, or as we as we can gauge if 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 our reference point is is social media, for instance. And from year to year, which is not the case in in this particular report because it's just a one time thing. But when you look at year to year. There aren't a lot of issues on which uh, public opinion changes, swings from one side to the other. Um, so anyway, so if, if that's what you expected, you're surprised because what uh, th this report tends to show is, yes, there are, there's disagreement here and there, 
But overall, um, um, uh, there's more maybe agreement or if when there is disagreement, it's at the margin. It's not like it's not a polarized across the board where you have half of the population on one side and the other half on the other side on, on a bunch of questions. It's really not that. And, and I think to me, this is interesting and not surprising because that's what I would have expected. Yeah. How does that you, you spent a lot of time in this space. How does that jive with what you've already discovered? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it confirms uh, a lot a, a lot of what we've looked at. Um, again, I think it's normal that people disagree on questions, right? So you see in the report, for instance, uh, uh, questions that are about uh, what to do with the death or what about deficits, right, and taxes. Those are questions for which it is uh, uh, completely normal to see people disagreeing and to see conservatives voters think one, one, one thing and liberal voters think another. That's not polarization. It's just politics and policy, right? So it's just having a conversations about important issues. And so we see that in the report and that's something that we see time and time again in, in polling. And there is disagreement, an important one, like on, on, on questions like climate change. And again, this is an important issue for society. That doesn't mean that we're polarized and we can talk about it. It just means that we kind of disagree as a society on, on, on what we should do. So again, this, I think it's in the report. It's, it's things that we see um, uh, uh, in past uh, uh, research as well. And one thing that's important to know also is that we tend to, I, I say we tend, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that and, and others are as well, to look south of the border and to think that things are similar here. Um, when you look, for instance, at immigration, questions on immigration on the report, um, it, it's on immigration, improve country, uh, uh, improve the country. You can see that everyone kind of agrees with that whoever they voted for in the last federal election. So there isn't a polarization on immigration, for instance, in Canada that you would see in Europe, that you would see in the US. So we have to be careful about importing what we see elsewhere as, as a phenomenon and thinking that we are seeing the same thing in our country. What's interesting about it, too, is that if you listen to the political discourse, for instance, it would suggest a more divided country than Canadians seem to think they live in. Uh, and it's interesting that when asked about it, people seem to be quite happy with the country they live in. A lot of people seem to think Canada is going relatively in the right direction, even. Um, and, and certainly our political discourse over the past few years, has, at least from on the conservative side, has seemed to suggest that that's not the case. So what do you think is going on here? I mean, different things, right? So, uh, and first of all, it, it shows why polls like this, and this is a huge one, right? It's 10,000 respondents. Uh, it shows why it's important because quite often uh, people who disagree with the ways things are going will speak louder, right? We'll be louder. We'll do like the truck convoy, for instance. And people who are quite content and, and happy with how things are going won't go out in the streets to say it and yell it, right? Um, and, but more often than not, uh, they are the majority. And we tend to think, and, and many uh, politicians will use that, talk about the silent majority, right? Well, the silent majority more often than not is quite happy with how things are going and they stay silent. So I think I think we see that coming out of that report as well. And it's important to, to, uh, to mention it. And another thing that's important to mention, I think, when you're looking at results in the report, where you see a lot of polarization or where you see a group on one side and a group on the other, one group at the extreme is the People's Party. And when you just look at graphs, you're like, oh, okay, there's a big spread there. There's a big distance here. It's important to remember that they did not even get 5% in the last election, right? So that group that you see over there is not equal to the other group that you see in the middle. They're much less important in terms of numbers. So that's also important to keep in mind. Um, what portrait do you think this then paints of Canada on Canada Day 2022 as we head into it? Uh, because there's been lots of talk about who we are, where we're headed. Uh, certainly the pandemic has had a huge impact on the way we think about things. Uh, what kind of portrait do you think this and, and other work paints, uh, your work, uh, of where we're at right now I mean, as, again, as a country? Yeah. I don't want to overplay the consensus. Uh, like I said, I think there are big issues on which we disagree, but I also think we don't need to overplay that role. I think there are conversations that we need to have. And for instance, like in, in some of the work that we've done, and by we, I mean, I'm part of a, the IRPP and, and the, the center I lead is part of a group called the Confederation of Tomorrow, that, that group, a group which uh, uh, includes uh, the Environics Institute, Canada West Foundation, uh, a series of organizations across Canada. And we do a poll every year. And we see, for instance, on reconciliation, uh, we see disagreement there. We see Indigenous people feeling like we haven't done enough on reconciliation and non-Indigenous people 
feeling what we've done enough. So there are conversations there that will need to happen and not everything is perfect and people disagree. But here again, uh, when we talk about, but what about the future? Are you optimistic about the future in terms of reconciliation? There, both indigenous and non-indigenous people are uh, optimistic about the future uh, for reconciliation. So again, we disagree, but there's a willingness to talk about these things and to try to try to uh, 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 to improve things. Uh, so I think this is this is what we need to remember um, that yes, there's disagreement, but it's not a polarization situation where both extremes don't even want to talk to each other. And a lot of this disagreement, to be honest, also that we need to keep in mind is is cross cutting, right? It's not two groups that map on those two groups, on two extremes on every question. Like, for instance, age is becoming more important for issues like cost of living and housing, right? It's not left or right, young people can't afford to own a house, and this is becoming much more of an issue, right? So there's cross-cutting cleavages here. Uh, that means that we can also, in a way, talk about these things because it's not the same group that are opposed on all of the issues. I'm speaking with Charles Breton. He's the executive director of the Center of Excellence on the Canadian Federation at the IRPP in Montreal. We're talking about a huge new uh, survey that's been put out by a British firm. Lord Ashcroft uh, is responsible, or at least uh, his company is, really uh, painting a portrait of Canada right ahead of Canada Day 2022 as a place where there are disagreements, but uh, that overall we don't see the kind of polarization uh, that sometimes is mentioned uh, both in the media and by politicians. We certainly don't see the kind of polarization that we uh, are often used to seeing in the U.S. US. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about uh, what that might mean for politics in this country, if there is, in fact, uh, a lot of room for optimism, a lot of room for dialogue, uh, which is something that is often spoken of as, as not happening in this country, then where does that leave us and where should we go from here? That's next. My guest this half hour is Charles Breton. He's the executive director of the Center of Excellence on the Canadian Federation at the Institute for Research on Public Policy in Montreal. We're talking about a, uh, a very large survey that was done, 10,000 people uh, in Canada. paints a pretty interesting picture of this country, one that may not be counterintuitive, but that many people here are happy with the country itself, uh, not overly pessimistic about where we're going, in fact, quite optimistic in many ways, that we disagree on quite a few fundamental issues, uh, but that our disagreements are not uh, are not fatal in many ways that there is always room, uh, at least for now, uh, for dialogue. That must be encouraging in some ways, because I think you're right. I think we do look to the U.S. a lot, and we see this sort of, you know, these camps, these evenly divided camps, this very polarized society. And that may, too, uh, be exaggerated. But in, in our case, it looks like there is a lot of room for us to sit down and have rational conversations about some of the issues that, uh, some of the more important issues that confront us these days. Yeah, and I think one question where you see that is is when you you ask people what's the most the most important problem that Canada's facing today, or what are their worries, and you see that there's kind of agreements as to what are the issues, whether it's the economic situation, cost of living. You see a lot of mental health, which I found surprising uh, at the top of people's mind across across party voters. This is interesting because if we agree on the problem, it means that that which problems are important. It means that we can sit and then think through the solution. And there maybe we'll disagree, but at least we agree that there's a problem that we need to fix. Um, one place where this is where this might not be as true is climate change, as I mentioned before, where I think there is disagreement as whether this is an issue or not uh, uh, between uh, liberals and DP voters on one side and conservatives on the other. But again, there are many issues uh, um, uh, on which people agree that this is a problem that we need to address. And, and that's interesting because if you were to do the, ex the exercise in the US, my guess is that Republicans and Democrats would to some extent disagree on what are the major issues facing the US. One country, say, one, one, one party saying it's immigration, for instance, and the others not even registering immigration as an issue. So at least we seem to agree on what issues Canada should address. And then it's just a matter of discussing and, and, and having that discussion about what, what's the best solution. Uh, given your experience at this, this might suggest a pathway for politicians in this country that perhaps a silent majority of Canadians aren't too interested in this talk of division, aren't too interested in this talk of, of polar opposites, that don't see people with different opinions of their, uh, uh, from their own as being the enemy, quote unquote. Uh, and it would suggest perhaps that politicians should recognize that too, that maybe the talk of division in this country isn't something that will land with a whole bunch of voters, at least according to this survey. I mean, it's... You're right. And, and we'll have to see what, what happens there. I mean, it's hard to because 
politicians have a role to play here. Yes, they reflect the discussion that the that society is having, but they can also play a role in polarizing people and the way they're talking about these issues. Um, so the causal arrows for polarization in a way goes both ways, right? So the society can get polarized and then politicians follow uh, that polarization, but politicians can also be a cause of that polarization. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, who leads the conservative party might might have a role, a role to play there. We'll see. And how the liberals and the neo-democrats, new Democrats um, um, answer that will, might play a role. So we'll have to see. But I think reports like this one are important. And it, it's, it's something that politicians, people having... Uh, a, 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 a place in that discourse should pay attention to. Whether they'll listen or not, that's a separate question. Um, but I think it's interesting in highlighting how much we have in common more than how much we differ. One thing I did find interesting, and you already touched on it, was the idea that uh, that, that mental health and cost of living were the two top of mind issues for a lot of Canadians. And when you think about it, even just two years ago, those are not things we would have been talking about necessarily. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think um, um, mental health, I think there COVID plays a role, right? So we've, um, uh, the Confederation of Tomorrow project that I've talked about, it's a survey that we do with close to 6,000 Canadians every year. And we started in 2019 and then 2020, 2021, and then we did, we just did 2022. So we have data before the pandemic, during and after, and we, we can see it becoming an issue with the pandemic. Um, cost of living is something that is even more current now. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it, it's important to note that that question, which is a question that we also ask and that other polling firms ask as well, like most important issue, um, uh, what's top of mind, these things will move around, right? So cost of living with inflation right now is, is definitely top of mind for a lot of people. If you'd asked that question maybe three months ago, maybe not that high. Mental health is one that I see maybe sticking around a bit more. Uh, we've seen it again, like I said, creeping up during the pandemic. Um, and depending on how people, how things improve or, or not in the coming months, we'll see what happens. But I, I, I do feel like this is one that, that is, is likely to stick a bit more. Uh, Charles, is there overall an overall sense in the work that you do and in this report, this latest one as well, that Canadians still have faith in the institutions that govern them, whether it be the courts or politicians or so forth, that we still have faith in the way things are structured? I think so. I think so. And and there again, it's important to note. So it, and, and it's interesting because, again, like I, I, I said at the beginning, um, we tend to expect and maybe this is just because of political polling and, and the horse race where we see vote intention move around. We tend to expect public opinion to move around and it doesn't on many issues. And, and one good example of this is uh, in our in our Confederation of Tomorrow uh, a project, we ask questions about, you know, what government, what order of government is best at managing healthcare, whether it's the federal or provincial, which government do you trust most to represent your interest, interest, whether it's provincial or federal. And you would expect that if something would change the way people see their provincial government or their federal government, um, um, something like the pandemic might affect it. And if the pandemic does not affect it, I can't think about what would. <laughs> and and we didn't see any change, right? So the, the way people see their government or the way they feel their interest represented by the government uh, uh, um, did not change with the pandemic. So those are our, our public, those are attitudes that are, to use the word that I used before, quite sticky. They don't move around. Those are our deep, uh, uh, deep-seated beliefs. Um, and if the pandemic is not changing those, I don't know what would. And so that's, all, that's also something that's important to keep in mind. And yes, there are regions in the country that are more aggrieved than others, to use that word. Um, um, the prairies, of course, Alberta, Saskatchewan, but Newfoundland as well, and Quebec as well. It's different. It's a different sentiment, but it's there. And one thing that we, we keep repeating um, uh, based on our data is that, for instance, there is more differences on many issues within Alberta than between Alberta and the rest of the country. So if there, if you had to ask me which province is the more polarized, Alberta would be my answer. Uh, uh, on many issues, it doesn't really, 
It is not really meaningful to report the average for Alberta because we basically have two polls on many questions. So Alberta definitely is 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 more polarized than other provinces. But again, uh, on many questions, Albertans agree with the rest of the country anyway. So I think that's also something that that needs to be repeated. Charles thank you so much for your time tonight. It was my pleasure. Well, as I mentioned a bit earlier, it was a day of reflection in Lytton, B.C. today. That's about 260 kilometers northeast of Vancouver. Uh, that is the area that was destroyed by a devastating and deadly fire one year ago today. It came off a record heat wave. The Lytton had been in the news around the world, 49 degrees, and it hit the hottest Canadian uh, on temperature on record. Um, and then a day later, this fire just tore through the town. $102 million worth of damage, the Insurance Board of Canada estimates. It took 10 months for the debris removal to start. Uh, rebuilding has been a slow and frustrating process uh, for many there. Um, but today, again, was a day to look back and also to look ahead. And joining us now is Edith Lorraine Kuhanga. Uh, she's a longtime school administrator and a Lytton resident who lost her home in the fire last year. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben, for having me. What was it like today, the mood? Uh, what, what was going on in Lytton today, and what was the mood like? I think um, initially when um, people started to arrive, there was a lot of anxiety and um, fear. Um, um, but then as soon as people started to see each other that they hadn't seen, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people were embracing one another and... Uh, and just so happy to be able to see people that they hadn't seen or if they had once or twice in the last year. Uh, so, um, so I think that we saw a change as people started arrive. Um, and, uh, and then it, you know, turned out to be a, a really good event. I guess you got a sense of what could be if, uh, if the community rebuilds and everyone comes back. Yes, we had uh, we had uh, 420 people register, um, and uh, and there was some that went to right directly to the gym, um, and then we had about 80 volunteers. So today we had you know over 500 people come together, um, which is pretty remarkable because we have not had the opportunity. Um, you know the the big thing about Lytton that. Uh, people you know don't understand is that the town was burnt and uh and the main um ir18 of lfn Lytton first nation <clears throat> but we still have each other and i think that people you know are still clinging on to those relationships it was a very small town we're very well connected with one another and so that's what we're all missing and so the opportunity to come together today was pretty incredible. What are your memories of that day? I know you lost your home. Uh, what were your memories of a year ago today? What do you think of, think of when you think back to it now? Well, um, you know, uh, we've been participating in a time capsule project with the University of Victoria. And um, so over the last week, um, um, you know, we were writing and our kids were, were doing um their memories on on stones that were going to be put into the time capsule today. And so, um, you know, I just finally found a rental in Lytton. Um, and so I had community members over for dinner last uh, Saturday night. It was the first time that, that we were able to do that. And we started to talk about what that day was like and where were you and what happened. And, um, and so it was gut-wrenching. Um, to hear some of the stories that we haven't heard from each other. Um, and pretty um, miraculously that, you know, um, we, we lost two people and we're, you know, our hearts go to their families. But when we stop and really think about that day, it's amazing that there weren't many more lives lost. Um, and so that's something that I think that we reflect on and we're thankful for that a few people like um, Deputy Chief John Hogan and <clears throat> Councillor uh, Nakaya Hanna jumped in and started really helping trying to organize people from downtown Lytton to get out of downtown Lytton and go to our school, which we was what I was asked to do was to go set up a, an emergency center 
So I think at the school, in yeah. some yeah. regards, you know, we're, we're grateful. Um, there's um, lots of anger and frustration, of course, because, you know, we didn't really start to see progress on the debris removal until about a month ago. And so, you know, when you're driving by that every single day with the fences still up, and if you want to go visit your property, you have to put PPE in and you have to put a hard hat on and steel-toed boots and, um, you know, just to go and visit your property. I've only been back to my property twice. Once was to sift it, and a second time that I kind of snuck in when there was nobody at the gate <laughs> and just drove by the property, um, but I wasn't even able to get out because when I went to get out, that's when the security was there. So those are the only two times today. I, um, you know, they, uh, CBC was interviewing me and they wanted me to go to the property. I said no. Uh, so I was interviewed outside the property. So I think that, you know, there are some people like me who, you know, feel, almost feel like we're, you know, we're in a work zone, which I understand, but it's our, was our home. And, uh, and in some ways, you know, barriers are continuously being put up. So I think that's been what's, you know, partly really frustrating and the lack of progress. I can imagine. Yeah. What, what's it like? Where are you living now compared to where you lived before? And how do you get things done if you're back there? Where do you shop? Where do you, where do, you do your day-to-day? Because I realize a lot of that happened in town in the past. That's right. I lived right on Fraser Street. So there was Maine and then uh, Fraser Street. And Fraser Street is where the fire started. So I lived on the other end of Fraser Street. Um, and um, where I'm living is up on Loring Way, which is uh, on the opposite side of the highway, um, up on on the cliff a bit. Um, so, you know, when, when you're downtown, you get to see everybody, you know, um, people walk by and they stop and chat, and you're out in your yard, and, you know, and there's a lot of conversation, and, you know, um, but being up here um, on Loring Way, you, we don't have the same freedom um, that we did downtown. So, yes, we have be... to do all of our shopping outside of Lytton. There isn't any services at all right now in Lytton. But good for you to be back. I know you have responsibilities as well there, but it must be nice to be one of those who's been who's been able to go back. Yes, and, you know, um, I feel really grateful that I finally was able to get a place because, you know, it was, it was very difficult trying to work, uh, run the school, um, and not having a place to live. Um, being here for a couple of weeks, being there for a week, being here for a, w- a week. So, so I'm I'm very grateful that I now have a place that at least for the next year. How about the kids? How have they How have they adapted to this? Those that are there. You know, our, um, uh, we've all, we only had five students in our school population that were impacted by the fire that lost their homes. And there were five staff, myself included, and one board member. Um, And so, um, you know, but they were all displaced and they were all scattered all over the place. Our students had to do online learning. We ended up with a delayed school year um, in September. And then um, they were online up until February because when we were going to go back in November, then the atmospheric rivers happened and all the flooding happened and all the roads were washed out in the highways. And so by the time that the highway was open and the roads were <clears throat> decent enough and safe enough for, to, for our buses to travel on, we reopened uh, towards the end of February. So our kids, our students have had a really tumultuous year. And prior to that was two years of covid so when, when I think of, of them, and today when I wrote my letter for the time capsule, my letter was written to them. Um, in 30 years, this is, you know, you're going to be the adults and you're going to be the parents. And so um, I, I reflected on that. And I just think that our kids are so resilient and so strong um, that they're going to make amazing leaders in, in the future. And perhaps make Lytton what it once was again as well. Edith Loring Kahanga, thank you so much for your time tonight and sharing your thoughts about on this one-year anniversary. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben.
We'll stay in Lytton for the next uh, bit of this half hour. It's the one-year anniversary of that devastating and deadly wildfire that tore through the area, including the town of Lytton, the Lytton First Nation, which is nearby. Uh, joining us now is Chief Matt Pasco. He's the chair of the Inklakama Nation Tribal Council. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, there he is. Chief Pasco, can you hear me? Yes, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, Tell me a bit about today. How was it? For, how was it? Uh, how was it for you as you look back at one year and the progress that's been made or lack thereof, and just uh, what this day means to 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 everyone in the area? Well, um, I think for myself, it's uh, you know, there's certainly mixed emotions. Um, you know, you, 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 we know that uh, so many people were negatively affected in some of the harshest ways losing everything that they had. And um, as of today, still looking for some of the bare essentials to, you know, to get through uh, each day. So it's quite difficult. And I think for a lot of people, it is certainly um, mentally difficult as well as emotionally difficult for them. I know that um, that you've been working alongside, that the Tribal Council has been working alongside the province and so on, on trying to get... Um, well, first of all, there's there's a lot of archaeological work that needs to be done, but also working on the rebuild. How is that progressing, and, and where are the successes, and where are the challenges? Good question. No, there, there's been some really good accomplishments. Uh, you've identified arc work. Uh, the whole area of archaeology is uh, near and dear to us, um, but at the same time, you know, we want to expedite and ensure that uh, all people that had homes and properties and such are able to get back into their into their um, place and, and start the rebuild process. And, and we understood that ARC work was something that uh, could be a potential uh, bottleneck for that. And, and the Tribal Council worked very hard with the province of British Columbia to do that. And without our Tribal Council's uh, hard efforts in that area, those accomplishments would not be made. We've also seen, you know, some really good uh, work in the interim housing area, and um, people are going to be going back into interim housing, so they'll be back in their community um, here shortly, and um, that's always a positive thing. And um, we also are doing a lot of work on on a relief center um, to help uh, deliver food and water and and so on to. Uh, to the area. So there is some, some good work, um, but there's a lot of things that um, need more effort. And yes, I think it was yesterday or in the last few days, the province of British Columbia came out and made a statement on the one year anniversary. And, and in that statement, uh, and I, I somewhat quote, they say that, you know, this has been a, a partnership effort since day one. That's mm-hmm. incorrect. And that is a false statement. Yeah. Okay. We, we just have to go back to the day after, uh, you know, the day following the fire. You know, I, I don't call it a partnership when they're phoning, you know, my, you know, my number and making sure that my cattle are protected and safe, but never once talk about the Inflicomic people that were on the run through the night and that the vast majority of the province had no idea where these people were. Meanwhile, our tribal council was working diligently to make sure that we were triaging and finding out who was where and, um, you know, making, you know, strong databases to hold that type of information. In the days after that, the province wasn't at all helping us maintain those databases and the information and so on. So that you can't make those statements that it was from day one. They, they started helping perhaps a few weeks later. Then there was a lot going on, as you know, and I don't think I need to rehash those things. But uh, again, phoning me about cows and not about uh, people is not something that we call partnership from day one. Different levels, uh, different departments, I guess, uh, not not uh, not getting their story, not getting their priorities straight. Uh, are, are you confident now when you look at uh, at some of what you have accomplished? Because I know there's been a lot of good work done on the archaeological side, and certainly trying to get that expedited, making sure it's done right, but also making sure that it's done quickly. Um, 
are you confident now that uh, as we as we move forward that that we will see progress in in some of the things that you've mentioned and and, and alleviation of some of the frustrations? No, I think the quote that uh, the province put out um, in the last day or so um, leads me questioning how much effort's going to be going on into the future. And I, I can go a bit further. You know, the, the, both the province and the federal governments have been making mass announcements since Christmas time on funding. And yet they make these mass statements on funding without any regard to what a successful outcome would look like. And, and that is deeply concerning to me. And, and there's another component to it. They both make these statements. So they'll go out and, and they'll announce all these large dollars. They have an agreement with us, the so-called relationship that uh, the province is identifying as, you know, having been around since day one. They have not sat down with us to discuss what those funding envelopes are. And in fact, the feds, um, I think it was in March, uh, Minister Blair shows up, makes a mass announcement, of a bit, I believe about $200 million, but never reached out to us to discuss it. And in fact, his office at one time was arguing that they were not a part of the relationship, the commitment letters that uh, the feds uh, signed and committed to being in this partnership with us on. So at first they were actually stating that. Then we have Minister Sajan show up a couple of weeks ago and he phones us maybe a couple of days before, um, you know, just to pretty much indicate that he was showing up. He makes, you know, I think it was a $77 million um, announcement having never discussed it with us whatsoever. And so clearly we're uh, really quite concerning. Chief Pasco, thanks so much for your time. Obviously, communication has been a big issue here. I wish you the best of luck in your continued work. I know how important it is to, uh, to the, Na- uh, the Nation Tribal Council as well. Um, and thanks for your time tonight. Thank you very much. 